This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Frontline Gaming presents 40K Stat Center with your hosts, Val Heffelfinger and the Falcon. We sit down for schnitzel and beer with the best man in Bremen to cover the Northwest GT. Then we dish on all the deep dish drama that happened at the Basement Open Team Tournament. Did the Plague Hulk stand triumphant at the mother of all battles, or was the Space Marine meta too much to handle? Then we make our way to the middle of nowhere to meet with the Wheat Kings and Pretty Things of Brandon, Manitoba. Power up those Geller fields as we take flight across the pond to dance with the demons at Voidhammer. And there she is. The intro is locked and loaded. We got the Falcon. We got the Heffelfinger. Episode 17 is here. We have made it through another wonderful week of Warhammer with only a handful of injuries. And to recap the news, the Psychic Awakening has officially begun. Are you feeling a little bit more prescient, Falcon? I wouldn't say that, but uh, my sisters of silence are coming in about a week from now, and I'm uh, pretty excited to see what little GW has done for me. Oh, that's lovely. I, this is such a, a particularly niche faction to care at all about, so uh, kudos to you for having a, a little bit of 40k hipsterism in you. I, I, if if I, I'm not anything, if uh, not the only person that cares about that faction. Excellent. Uh, and in other news, Reese decided to make a terrain ruling for the SoCal Open that made at least four people extremely upset, and the Falcon was left alone to manage his family for two weeks. So far, everyone in his home is uh, in his home is still alive, and he is only short one pair of underwear that he didn't like anyway. It's a Thanksgiving miracle, Canadian Thanksgiving, the true Thanksgiving. Hey, happy Thanksgiving, bud. Happy Thanksgiving, Val. You going to be having a turkey or are you a ham type of family? Thanksgiving, uh, ham's kind of a Christmas thing. I mean, if you messed up. It, it is, it is. But um, as someone that has like an Acadian side to his uh, enclosed family, as, uh, sometimes they throw in these weird like pineapple ham situations that really throw you off. You know, I, I get it. And I, my heart would indeed sink if that were the case. But uh, I think we'll probably be dialing up the, uh, the gobble gobble. Ah, uh, nice. I've got a butterball hiding in my sink right now. Heck yeah. Um, that, that might be a bit of a salmonella problem. You might want to get that on ice or some form of refrigeration. <laughs> Just pro tip. Oh, listen, I, I'm solo with three kids. I'm get. I'm dealing with it one day at a time. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, this week we'll be taking you through the highs and lows of the Northwest Open Major in Bremen, Germany, the Basement Open Team Tournament in Sudbury, Ontario, Canada, the triumph at the mother of all battles in Sydney, Australia, the middle of nowhere GT in Brandon, Manitoba, Canada, and Voidhammer 2019 in Elgin, Scotland. You know what all those have in common? None of them are from the US of A, so you can you can hear the podcast apps being closed off by yeah. at least 75% of our audience. No, no one is interested in a meta other than their own. There you go. Well, it is a truly international episode as long as you're a former British colony. So that's, <laughs> uh, and Germany, which is pretty cool. Yes. And just rife with opportunities for really bad 
vowel accents. I can't wait. Um, I'm super looking forward to all of the emails we get about uh, our potentially uh, undercharged racism. Did we get? Did we get emails? No, no, except for the Texans. They and uh, somebody from Oklahoma really hated your rendition last week. Yeah, yeah, I refused to back down on that. I think that was some of our best work. I think you you were fantastic. It was almost like uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein were in the room with me. This the 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 musical you know the musical theater forty k crossover appeal I think is a is a niche that uh, we can just mine for for all kinds of clicks. It's got to be at least eleven percent of the community. At least eleven percent. All right, before we get started, folks, because we actually do have a a very large show for you today. We're um, gonna do that thing where we uh, shout out our boys and girls on the Frontline Gaming Network this week on Chapter Tactics. There was no episode of Chapter Tactics made for the public, as the hamster in charge of Brandon Grant's internet finally gave out, and he is still waiting on Cyberdyne to replace it. Chapter Tactics. Sometimes it's really good, and sometimes they ask me for my opinion. And uh, this week, uh, The Art of War with John Damaris and Nick Natavati brought in our good friend Innis Wilson for his hot take on White Scars. Um, if you hadn't already heard enough of him talking on here, you should check out the full report over yonder. He might actually be good at this game. Yeah, w- listening to Innis talk, as much as I hate to say it, just makes me kind of scared for how much more advanced people are at thinking about Warhammer than I am. Yeah, it's um, true. He is a uh, he's a character. Yeah, um, I like to think of myself as that sort of that wild card poker player that just doesn't know that they're betting a bad hand. That's me at a forty k tournament. Here we and go. And I like to think of myself as Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man. <laughs> There's a lot of those types. You're gonna mm-hmm. have a lot of competition for that. It's true. Uh, and of course, tune in live every Wednesday on Twitch and to whatever podcast Haven you use on Fridays for Signals from the Frontline, that venerable institution with Reese and Jason for your weekly dose of GW release news and whatever those kooky cats think of. And lastly, we got a big shout out for the people that make this all possible over at Best Coast Pairings. They're pretty swell and so is their app. You should subscribe to it or don't. We're not an authority figure in your lives, and we probably shouldn't be. Uh, the two of us make terrible life choices all of the time. Oh, man. Like starting a weekly 40K podcast. <laughs> yes, and trying to do it without a script and then realizing it was almost impossible. Tournament news is made possible by bestcoastpairings.com. Download the BCPTO app to organize events. For just about any tabletop game system, download the player app to easily find and participate in events from around the world. Around the world. Subscribe to BCP for as little as $5 a month to support the team and unlock additional features. Available for iOS and Android. BestCoastPairings.com. Competitive events. Easier. Our first stop this week is Bremen, home of Beck's Beer and the Alliance Open's Northwest GT, an international attempt to bring the ITC to Germany, and a successful one at that. Held by the Dutch Wonderkinds over at Alliance Open and amazing folks from Target Priority 40K, the Northwest GT was a 74-player major event using ITC missions and rules. We caught up with Cease, Wham Bam, Thank You Ma'am, Jan Stam, the tournament TO for an intro to the event and why it was so important. The Alliance Open Northwest GT is a 80-person IT major 
hosted by us from Alliance Open, a Dutch DO company, uh, not Danish actually, uh, in cooperation with the guys from the Targeted Priority podcast from Germany. Uh, the guys from the podcast joined us uh, at several of our events the last couple of years, and we're very keen on getting an event of similar high quality up and running in, uh, in Germany. So we decided to join forces and combine our event experience and our l- huge drain pool uh, with their streaming experience. And yeah, well, one thing led to another, and we just had our first edition, and uh, we expect it to be one of many, many more. The meta was, as you might expect, uh, largely German, but it also included a very strong contingent from the Netherlands, uh, as were neighboring countries. Uh, we had a good mix of very experienced players uh, from both the international tournament circuit uh, as well as several of the European ETC teams. But most importantly, at least for us, we also had a large group of new uh, tournament players, either new to the tournament scene in general or new to the ITC tournament scene, which as you probably know is not that big in Germany yet. Uh, but I think this was one of the first ones uh, to uh, try and get a full foothold there. Um, uh, we had a lot of people fly into the event. Uh, we held it in, an, uh, in a hotel. So uh, we had a lot of people join us for a full weekend of uh, wargaming at its finest, as you might say. I think one of the more noteworthy things, uh, besides the fact that it was the first German IC major ever held in the country, is that it was an international event, at least for us as a TO group. Uh, we are one of the first, as far as I, c- I could find, uh, to host an event in a different country. And uh, for this, of course, the, the support from the Target Priority Podcast guys was of great importance uh, to help with language uh, and culture barriers. But yeah, for us it was uh, a great new experience to, to land uh, in a new country, uh, put up an event and have everyone enjoy uh, the ITC missions and um, and our terrain and our TOing. Uh, so yeah, that was very special for us uh, and something to remember. Now we rarely hear much about the German Warhammer scene on our side of the ocean. Outside of the ETC, it is actually pretty easy to forget that they have a thriving player base as they do use their own tabletop masters circuit instead of the ITC for most of their events. With the spread of 8th edition and the growth of the ITC as a whole, it is absolutely a pleasure to see more of how our great game is being played around the world. We highly recommend you check out twitch.tv slash targetpriority40k or the Target Priority 40k YouTube channel for some excellent coverage of the event. All of the coverage was provided in English and the production quality was top-notch. Do note, however, that only part of the final round was broadcast, as one of the players uh, became very uncomfortable on stream, and so the organizers chose to turn off the cameras for his benefit. So was he just having a bad time? What was going on there? Well, I, I won't get too much into it, because it was uh, like the, the reasoning wasn't quite broadcast, but from what I understand uh, from talking to a couple of the guys at Target Priority and uh, what was said after the event, he was just getting extremely nervous uh, being on stream. It wasn't uh, something he was very used to. Um, and he was uh, struggling to make some decisions in game because of it. Uh, mm-hmm. It was just too much on his brain. So he asked if they could uh, shut off the cameras. 
and they obliged. From what I understand, it had nothing to do with like sportsmanship or anything like that. It was just a, a guy that uh, was a little nervous uh, having, you know, tens of people watch him. Yep, absolutely. And uh, I don't know. We covered this on Chapter Tactics, I think, together. Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah it's, a, it's an interesting thing. Um, I believe that there's a, a type of an event where you need to go in expecting this is going to happen. Um, but I don't think all of 40K is there yet. Uh, so like an event like this, you know, it's a decent size, but the, it's new. They're growing. They're in a untapped market, if we're really being honest, when it comes to, you know, live streamed games. Um, I don't see any problem in someone asking to either turn the cameras off or just not be on camera, period. Yeah. Um, that being said, if you're at LVO, um, that should be something that maybe you need to, uh, you know, swing the other way on and say, well, this is the biggest event of the year. You got to expect that you might end up on camera and be ready for it. Yeah. And I'm just glad they were able to get a, a reasonable resolution out of it and it seemed pretty amicable. So that's good. Yeah, for sure. The softest take ever from old Val there. Um, moving on. The event would end with two undefeated players. Dean El Loco Co. running Chaos Space Marines would get best general, while Sebastian Mueller's day off <laughs> would take best overall with his Ultramarine successor chapter. Well, I know you may be shocked to hear that no Iron Hands list graced the top ten. Please note that the rules cutoff for the event was one week prior to that supplement's launch. Now... Let's take a look at their lists. If you'd like to follow along at home, dear listeners, the organizers used funpun.to to manage the event, the most adorable tournament organizing platform uh, that perhaps exists. <laughs> yeah, you can also uh, see the top four lists over at 40kstats.com um, if you're having a hard time with that website. <laughs> All right, quit your yakking. It's time for a Heffelfinger list reading. We've got Sebastian Mueller's uh, Space Marine list here. He's uh, chapter traits were master artisans and long range marksmen. Pete, what do those do? Uh, master artisans is the uh, old salamanders chapter tactic where you can reroll one hit or one uh, and one wound roll per unit. Mm -hmm. And long range marksman is plus three inches to the range of all of your weapons. Huh. Not too bad. Looks like he's just got one big old battalion here. Um, and it's uh, staffed with uh, a captain uh, with a power fist and a storm bolter as his warlord, a lieutenant, uh, just rocking bolt pistol, chain sword. Under the troops, we got um, uh, 10 infiltrators, 10 inf infiltrators, and one unit of 10 intercessors. Um, and uh, the inf intercessors are rocking the bolt rifle option, of course. Uh, and then in the elite slots, we've got an aggressor squad. We got six of those guys with the ever ever so popular bolt storm gauntlets and frag storm grenade launchers and then he's got three of those uh delightful aliens in victor tactical war suits um in the fast tech we've got um this is this is cool tech three units of three uh suppressor squads and then in the heavy support we've got uh one devastator squad with uh four grav cannons and the grav amp and then we've got two Eliminator squads. Um, both of them are, are three, just with the Bolt Sniper Rifle. And then uh, just as a little PS de la Resistance, we got a little Drop Pod uh, as a uh, dedicated transport option. So there you go. He's got a lot of, lot of DACA. Got some um, snowflakey choices. I, I, I know he talks about it, um, but those yeah. suppressors are pretty cool. The suppressors are really cool. Um, actually, suppressors are very strong with Ultramarines. Um, and with uh, iron hands, but I don't know what isn't strong with iron hands. So, uh, but I mean, from the a, hand uh, is made of iron. 
<laughs> but the suppressor squads, I mean, your turn one, um, if you if you uh, deploy them on the board, they are going to be um, AP minus three. So the unit shooting six shots, AP minus three, is strength seven, AP minus three, two damage apiece, which isn't too shabby. And then when you swap into that beautiful tactical doctrine, um, now they're moving 10 inches and they suffer no penalty to shoot. Um, and they still have that, you know, wicked ranged auto cannon. So it's, they're like surprisingly versatile in an ultramarines list. Um, I, this list is, is really DACA heavy. Uh, the Invictor Tactile Warsuits are really great uh, as an opener to tie up the enemy lines. They've got those uh, Incendium cannons for the Super Flamers. Yep. Uh, Ultramarines Aggressors, everybody knows what those do. It's a billion shots all the time that just hurt. Um, the Devastator Squad, He's obviously that's what he's dropping in that drop pod for the Grav. I think the only thing here that's kind of out of the ordinary, I mean, we talked a little as suppressors, but you do see those in the Ultramarines list, is the um, Infiltrator Squads. Um, you don't see people running 20 infiltrators um, in anywhere. Um, a lot of people think they're just too expensive to run that many. Uh, you, you'll often see, you know, squad of five, maybe two, yeah. but a full 20 that covers a lot of board in the early game. And it's going to shut down a ton of, uh, of deep strike lists. Yeah. I mean, with, with 20 of those models with 32 millimeter base, you're pretty much covering the board end to end. Yeah. So, so like any, like, um, most, I should say, Gene Steeler Cult's shenanigans are shut off. Uh, orcs are, if they're running in like an Evil Sons battalion that's trying to get in your face, they're not having any any fun time with it. Um, Raven Guard lists, um, even though they weren't available for this uh, event, another one that w- is not going to like this list. Yeah, like it's a it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty nice. I, I I really like what he's doing here. All right, well, I guess uh, we've we've done a little bit of a hot taki, and uh, why don't we? kick it over to Mr. Mueller himself and he'll uh, talk about his event and his experience. So was there anything special about my approach? Like in the general list building, I'd say yes. In the optimizing for ITC champions missions, I must admit no, because that was my first ever champions missions tournament. And um, therefore it was a little bit experimental to me. So like that. Uh, what exactly to bring to to max out the secondaries and so on. So I decided to go with a rather with a tested ETC list than with an experimental denial ITC list. And um, yeah, I think like the other point is like not running the brigade, but just a battalion, which is generally just optimizing the output of the list rather than uh, relying on command points, but that's definitely something that uh, is worth reconsidering for future tournaments. My absolute all-stars in all games were uh, the suppressors, for sure. Um, playing against orcs and even against necrons, the uh, snipers were doing their job. I was not running last fusils, but just normal sniper rifles on the eliminators. But uh, the consistency, the range, and the... Uh, devastation that uh, the suppressors can wreak is absolutely amazing a unit for 90 points six shots strength seven ap minus two double damage plus all the uh space marine shenanigans that is definitely uh, a very brutal unit to field what was my favorite match or moment of the tournament i was having like five very cool games um 
but I must admit, like, uh, in the finals against uh, Thomas Morley Brutcher from um, Hamburg, with his uh, pretty fearsome freebooter orc list, uh, having first turn in a pretty open table, I must admit and apologize to him once more that the uh, Seas of Initiative was definitely uh, a beautiful moment in the very same game. Uh, having an exploding tactical warsuit in the middle of uh, uh, the Orc army with all their multiple small units and dealing their um, D6 mortal wounds. Um, that that was a work of beauty, to be honest. <laughs> what I'd like to share in general about the event is um, a recommendation for everybody uh, in Europe to like join an alliance open event because that's something that I've never seen in that form around here before. Event organized in a absolutely professional manner in a nice hotel where you can stay then just go have your breakfast and coffees and then just walk over to the tournament and, and play great games. They have uh, an app that does the pairing where you can see each and every list and each and every standing in previous rounds and all, all that you need to know. And uh, with CJ, they also got a very competent and straight judge who is not afraid to take a decision, which is, I think, one of the most important qualities. So I can just uh, recommend and, and share this positive information about this tournament to everybody. Thanks a lot, Seb, for all of your insights there. There's some good stuff to be heard. Now, let's uh, flip it over to Dean Coe. We're going to read his list out first. This is the best general of the first cross-border major operation from uh, from our friends at, at uh, the Alliance Group here. And uh, Pete, why don't you take it away with that uh, sweet, sweet chaos music? Yeah, so a Dean, Dino Co. he ran a Red Corsair's Supreme Command Detachment, all of them uh, with the Mark of Nurgle, he, uh, and all of them Lord Discordants. That was the, the whole detachment, three Lord Discordants, two of them with autocannons, one with a Baleflamer. He then had a Crimson Slaughter Airwing Detachment um, with Heldrakes, all of them running Baleflamers, and then he ended it up with a Purge, a spearhead detachment with a sorcerer with a jump pack, a force axe and combi bolter, three hellforged Deardeos with those butcher cannons and greater havoc launchers, and two hellforged contemptor dreadnoughts, uh, all running the double butcher cannon setup. And he left himself five army reinforcement points because he is a baller and he couldn't figure out where to spend them. Absolutely, and you know this is this is a genius innovation. I think um, this list. Yeah, I, um, I have not seen anything like this since May, except for all those other people that uh, almost directly copied Don Hoosen's list uh, from the BAO. Um, I mean, come on, means, why wouldn't you? I mean, this is this is this is a lot of power. It's a lot of fun. It is. I mean, there's a lot to be said for these lists. I mean, Don said more than enough, I'm quite sure, on <laughs> whenever he's had the chance. But um, low model count, you're not reliant on CP, so that doesn't matter. I'm sure Dean's going to cover a lot of this um, in his in his talk, so I'm tr I'll try not to to overlap too much. But it's it's uh, it's still a very strong list, and in the right hands, like I've seen this list uh, repeatedly uh, since May, um, and. So, uh, not all, not always, but with a decent amount of success. 
Um, so see, seeing it win another event um, does not shock me, uh, especially in the hands of someone like Dean, who does have a reputation uh, for putting up some pretty big numbers in the uh, the Dutch, the Netherlands. All right. Well, that's not what the people have come here to hear. Why don't we just give it over to Dean, who's provided us with some wonderful insights. I can't take any credit for the, de- for the design of my army list since it's 99% a copy-paste from the almighty Don, the Macedon Husen. My gaming friend Dick tipped me on his list since he knew I was getting tired of running Hordes of Plague Bears and running big demon engines has always been a great hobby uh, idea. It seems everyone is on the lookout for toolboxes, buffs and synergies. And while this gives you as a player a lot of options, it also allows you to make a lot of mistakes. In my army list I have 11 units who can operate independently and only one tool unit. This means I only have to focus on my deployment and target priority. It's pure threat saturation and a lot of butcher cannons. The MVPs were the Heldrakes by far. They're one of my favorite models in the Chaos range and with their mobility and range of their Baleflamers, there's no hiding from them. It's also fun to see how my opponents react to the Heldrakes since it's one of the least expected units in the comp- competitive scene. I've run this list for two months now so it was interesting to see how it would hold up against different factions. Apparently. Butcher Cannons and Bill Flamers have no problem tearing through Primaris Marines. The Distraction Discos did their dance and the Hildrakes managed to snap characters and units who believed they were safe behind their walls. My two favorite games were against my fellow Dutchman Root Steinbuckers, who brought two Tantalus, and the German Manuel Bell with his Ultra Bloods Primaris Marines. Absolute champions of the hobbies and perfect targets for my Butcher Cannons. One of the most enjoyable moments of the weekend was seeing how 30 orc boys tried to tag and wrap my dreadnoughts and ended up being stomped to 5 boys left. As expected, this was another great event by the Alliance Open and hosted by Target Priority 40k. My team, the Amsterdam Battle Brothers, had a great weekend with great results. I would like to thank all my opponents for great games and hope to see them again at our events. Thank you. Thanks, Seven Dean. In the future, folks, please do not ever reference Don Hoosen again. He can barely fit his shirt over his head as it is. Tournament oh. news. Hi guys, I'm Manny Chima, one of the founders of Glasshammer Gaming and the head coach for the Glasshammer List Writing and Coaching Service, and you're listening to the 40k Stat Center. Sudbury, the Nickel City, the Devil's Copper, the jewel of Northern Ontario, Canada. It is a wargamer's paradise, filled with mines, smokestacks, and the kind of sadness you can only find in a northern working-class kind of city. It's like living in a Coen Brothers movie if they drained all the quirkiness away. Now, what Sudbury lacks in hopes and dreams, it absolutely makes up for when you consider events like the Basement Open Team Tournament that was held this last weekend. Hosted by the Joel and Ethan Cohen of Wargaming, the Basement Collective, the BOTT was a 64-player, 16-team ATC-style event held at the APP Sudbury Club and Pizza Parlor. Here's T.O. Kevin the Armchair General Armitage with the lowdown. Hey guys, we're the Basement Collective. My name's Kevin Armitage and I ran the second annual Basement Collective Open Team Tournament, otherwise known as the Basement Open Team Tournament, where a 16-team, four-man team event from uh, Sudbury, Ontario, using the ATC format. This is our second year running the Basement Open Team Tournament. Well, actually, I should say it's the second time this year. 
We originally had it planned in January's, but in Northern Ontario, people weren't too keen to drive up in January's. So now this is our first one held in October, and then going forward, it's going to be held yearly in October. We are, like I said, 60 teams, 64 people uh, using the ATC format, just brought down so it would be applicable to four people. This year, we saw teams from all around Ontario. We had a bunch of teams from our hometown in Sudbury, Ontario. Then we had a couple teams from Quebec. Uh, it's um, a great event, a great Canadian event. It's the second largest team event in Canada. It was using the ITC format, which is as per the ATC um, tournament pack. Uh, it turned out to be a great event. Everybody had, everybody had a fun time, and there was no real issues during the event itself our actual best general team for the tournament was bloodbath and beyond that is run by or the captain was hamza syed and then on his team was brendan minty chris kanakos and mike harrison hamza ran an imperial knight imperial list uh, brandon minty ran jukari chris ran gene silicult and mike harrison ran tau and those lists are available on bcp if you want to take a look at those so this brave young man put on his second team event in the last year and it went off without a hitch. By all accounts, things were absolutely rosy. After five rounds of team tournament play, everyone was content. The winners held their new trophies aloft while the losers cheered and ate meatball subs described by one reviewer as kind of rude on the phone. Could be more polite, but I do love the pizza highly recommend. And everyone went home happy. Or did they? Unfortunately for poor Mr. Armitage, things didn't go as planned after the fact. In a twist that came right out of left field, it was discovered that one of the players on the event's winning team had been playing with a list just shy of 100 points over 2,000. And not only that, may have knowingly done so. Kevin gave us the full story from his perspective. Now, there was an issue that had arisen after the event that I was informed of the day after. So yesterday, or I guess it's Monday, after the event that the winning team had actually an illegal list in their roster. Uh, one team, one member on a roster had a unit that was like an extra unit that shouldn't have been there. And his list was over 98 points. This caused an issue for a couple reasons. First of all, this is a team event, and as per many team events, there was a verification process where the captains were each assigned three lists that they had to check for errors. Any errors not found by a cutoff date were then considered legal for the tournament. So technically, even though this was an illegal list, it was legal for the tournament in the fact that the error was never found. But that's not the end of the story. On Monday morning, I was made aware of this, and I had started to let people know that, unfortunately, while this error existed, it did get through the verification process, and as per the player pack, this would have been accepted. But upon farther investigation, I, it was discovered that the player in question did know that his list was illegal, and still, as it seems, according to three, at least three of his opponents, used the illegal model after knowing that the list was illegal. This causes a bad sportsmanship type of situation in uh, an act of bad faith. 
And because of this issue, it then required me as a tournament organizer to um, go into farther detail, consult the ITC code of conduct and see what was to happen. And I came up on deciding that the player who played the illegalist would get a yellow card. And then the team captain also agreed with me that they would be excluded from ITC rankings and any um, ITC points and so forth rewarded with those rankings. The player was then dropped. Well, the team was dropped from the event. And everybody who played the player with the illegal list was then given maximum points for a as if they had table turn zero, which is as per ITC, which is thirty six points. And the rankings were resubmitted after that. Now, as to I came to the yellow card conclusion for unsportsmanlike conduct, two points need to be made. First of all, the list was technically legal as for the player pack, and that it passed. The verification process and no errors were found but that is if that it was an honest mistake the player in question knew that his list was illegal and then he did use the illegal models during the tournament he was informed by his captain to inform me that his list was legal before and to correct it but that never happened so his list was legal but because he knew that it was not an honest mistake and he knew it was illegal. There was unsportsmanlike conduct to use that model or that illegal list, which is why it resulted in a yellow card for unsportsmanlike conduct compared to a red card or an event ban or so forth like that. Additionally, it's important to mention that myself as a tournament organizer, I know this person for the long time. I've known him ever since I played 40k and he's never been known to cheat or have anything like this. This is the first occurrence of this and it, that player itself has responded to the post I made on our Facebook page, The Basement Collective, um, accepting what he did was wrong and apologizing for it, which goes in a long way to showing that he is he is sorry and that it won't happen again. I suspect it's not going to happen again. So that's the reason for the yellow card and, and all my issues that went on. Additionally, just a quick point, as I know I'm taking lots of time here, I just wanted to talk about the fact that I've never gone through something like this as a TR. I've won three other major events before, uh, 60 plus people, and I've never experienced this before, um, where a player might have been purposely cheating. And there's still some amb ambiguity behind it, but it seems like the evidence points to that he did know. So... I had to reach out to some TO friends, and, and, and the ITC Code of Conduct really helped. And I just think at the end, as a TO, we have to hold our players accountable if we want to produce a good faith environment for competitive 40K. So it's tough to make these decisions, but in the end, I think it will help and prosper the community. All right, well, that's what they call a sticky situation. Um, I mean, I, for one, am pretty impressed mostly with... Um, how I guess calmly, but also quickly, Kevin seemed to get to as close to the bottom of this as he could. Yeah, I agree. When you listen to uh, the way he's he's pitched the situation, I think Kevin did a, an admirable job of uh, of of handling what would be a very difficult situation for anyone. Uh, I mean, uh, working with a potential cheat or probable cheat. Uh, especially somebody that you've uh, played with for quite some time that you know very well, it's uh, like you said, it's extremely sticky. Like, how do you truly deal with that situation? Um, do I think he handled it a hundred percent correct? In my mind, maybe not. I don't see why you don't just give the red card here. You don't necessarily have to ban the person. Yeah, but 
Full disclosure, I mean, uh, uh, the player is is a friend of mine, um, a friend of a lot of ours in this area, and uh, still is. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it is tough. I agree. If those are the conclusions Kevin came to, um, I think a red card would be appropriate. However, I think, um, you know, on balance, I do understand why why he went with the with the yellow. Ultimately, the the team did suffer uh, the the full consequence, from what I understand. I think he mentions it. Um, did offer to concede on top of it. Um, so yeah, and then you know the player, the the whole thing is as mentioned is is available. You know, you can go see an exchange between the TO and the player on the actual site if you're so inclined. Um, but yeah, there was contrition and I think that's what you want to see. And, you know, first time offense, this is still a pretty big deal. It's getting coverage. I don't For know. For sure. And, and really at the end of the day, the way we currently handle yellow and red cards, um, it, I guess it's really a matter of semantics anyway, yeah. um, because we're not tracking them. Right. And I guess that goes to a broader question of when and when and how do we start that system? Yeah. Um, because like Kevin says, and I mean, you, like you say, you know, the person, uh, very well as well. And I know of him, I've met him a couple of times. Um, the, the main situation here is sure it's, it's. I would like to think that the majority of people don't intentionally cheat. Um, but uh, how are we to know in the future if if it happens again, yeah. right? And that's really all it comes down to. I don't think it would um, with my knowledge of who this person is. But it doesn't mean that uh, we shouldn't have some way to track that so that if it did, we can say, okay, hey, listen, this isn't exactly your first kick of this can. Um and when you look at events like this, um, if you look at a bigger event and something of this magnitude happens, it blows up. Like everywhere on the internet knows about, uh, you know, Alex Harrison water bottles and situations like that. Whereas this kind of, um, uh, you know, fell by the wayside. Uh, and if we weren't reporting on it, I don't know if too many people outside of, uh, you know, the Ontario uh, tournament community would even know about it. Yeah. And I mean, to an extent, I think that also makes a bit of sense. I mean, the GTs and, and tournaments like this are ultimately quite local. Um, and these situations mercifully are quite rare. Um, you know, as far as how, you know, the game gets to a point, uh, in which, you know, this things can be tracked. Well, one of the reasons, you know, I, I don't like, uh, you know, slandering people, uh, is, you know, uh, liability. And that's definitely a concern of anyone who's, <laughs> you know, in any sort of a position to do, um, to do something like that is there needs to actually be an organization and you need as we need to, as players actually consent, uh, to participating in that organization, a sanctioning body, if you will, these exist in most games and lots of sports. Uh, so that is the kind of the way we would have to go. And that is at, at that point when it's a matter of record, uh, that's a different story, but there would also have to be standards. It's not just about tiring and feathering people. I think, that that to For me sure. is 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 what it is what's important. There's actually a really really great uh, art of war killing it. Uh, but after the, um, the Stephen Box incident and the massive YouTube vid he dropped, um, he went on Art of War, and I think they with Nick Natavati uh, and um, John Damaris uh, they get really into it. And John especially brings a lot of knowledge from the early days of competitive uh, magic. Uh, tournament play and talks about how those systems evolved and it's and it you know it does take a great deal of coordination and um you know to do fairly and it actually does change the game 
uh, dramatically from a conduct perspective. I also don't think, based on what he's describing, we're anywhere at that level of, of conduct issue, um, especially since, uh, as a community, we seem to be doing a much better job of enforcing it at all. There is a time where I don't even think this happens, you know, um, where, where, you know, there is no, um, you know, consequence at all to the, the illegal list. It just goes. Um, For sure. And I think that's also, yeah, anyway, we, we, can, we can stop belaboring the point here. But, uh, yeah, I think overall very well handled uh, by the TO here. And, uh, yeah, perhaps red would be more appropriate, but yellow, uh, at least some sort of sanction. And um, we get to find out about the right team winning. Yeah, kudos to Kevin. Like I said, good job overall. Absolutely. So on to happier things. With the dust settled and the air cleared, a new winner was crowned Team Bloodbath and Beyond. We reached out to Team Captain Hamza the Hammer Saeed to ta- for his takes on his team, their matchups, and the event as a whole. As you'll see, Hamza really takes this game seriously. My team took the standard approach in the sense that I was the Imperial Knights player who would generally go down first because I needed board choice. And on top of that, I was the guy who would bait out some of the armies for the opponents that my teammates did not want to play in some instances. My teammate, Mike Harrison, he was playing Tau. He had Triptide, Broadside Bomb. He had a bunch of Shield Drones. He had Cadre, Shadow Sun, all the good stuff. So he was a really good, um, very high DACA list. Then we, our third player was a Drukhari player, Brendan Minty. He played uh, all transports, He about six transports in the list, three flyers, three ravagers. So once again, very high DACA, take over the whole board. And since he had a lot of saves to fall back on within vulnerables and feel no pains on Drukhari. And our last player was Chris on Gene Stealer Cults. He played an incredibly strong list in the sense that if he got the right matchup he wanted, he would generally take the win out in a very dominating fashion. There were definitely some factors that contributed to our list building, uh, such as our Gene Stealer Cult player, Chris. He loves playing big units of Acolytes with about eight Rock Saws, you know, about four Mining Lasers or something like that in each unit. Just devastate opponent with a high amount of concentrated shooting, and on top of that, the ability to get really high damage in hand-to-hand as well, therefore killing a lot of elite units in one go almost immediately. My personal take is Aberrants, just because I love the fact that they can go cult ambush get a bunch of modifiers to your charge like most gene stealers can but uh they can good get good rapid rapid ability and they can also uh withstand a good amount of firepower because of their minus one of damage they feel no pains and if you get a couple other buffs going but our other list was drukari which was really different uh brendan minty played a lot of rule of three he had three venoms three ravagers three raiders three descending raiders uh, by the way raiders are amazing because they can take up to units of 10 cabalites 10 moons really take the model along. Our strategy for pairings, definitely after the tables were all set up and organized, was definitely looking at where the there was the biggest line of sight blocks, where there was the biggest amount of magic boxes, where there was the, pretty much the bowling alleys the, on out of the four tables. Uh, generally, I would go down first, or the Gene Steel Occult player would, depending on, once again, how many magic boxes or how many line of sight blocks were available. Uh, main reason for me is because I'm Imperial Knights, so what I like to do is I like to make sure that there's not that many ruins uh, and there's also not that many 
hills or modifiers for my knights to have to go up and down and traverse different obstacles. Um, and then our Gene Steeler cult player, Chris, he really needs to get a lot of line of sight blocking. He needs to get a lot of insurance on his unit's survivability and make sure that he can make some key charges without opponents getting some devastating overwatch. And that really helps his whole army out because it gives him survivability as well too. Uh, our team's MVP was definitely Mike Harrison. Um, he's been on uh, my team for many, many, many years now. We've competed in multiple team tournaments. He's always usually been the one guy that's kind of edged ahead the rest of the team in terms of how well he's done in battle score or how many points he got for the team overall. And just certain matches where you think he wouldn't get the points or if he wouldn't win, he would really pull through and get us the big win or the, the, the points we needed to go through on the round. So he really did come through for us on this event once again. He went 4-1 with a great Tau army. He got matched up against Gene Sirocult with a odd time too. Played a great board control game. Didn't let him get the points he wanted. And um, he played against Knights. Did exactly what he was supposed to do. Overall, he was just a great player. And I think he only had one bad game. But uh, I, I think it was kind of out of his hands. He played against Iron Hands. Triple Executioner. Double Storm Cannons. That's going to be a kind of a difficult game for anyone to kind of take away. Overall, I had a great team tournament event. Everyone was a great sportsman. Every single person I played was uh, excellent to collaborate with, to learn off of, and uh, to really get proper discussions and Warhammer going rather than a debate. It was really uh, constructive opportunities to really make good friendships with really great people in this hobby as well. Uh, my main moments in this event were definitely, I don't know if this is even a good thing, I got seized on on three of my five games. But I somehow managed to win two out of those three seized games. So that was kind of like the up and down aspect in the sense that my game started with a complete down and lowest point. But then I somehow managed to see the game through because of some good moments in the game from some models. Or the assassins or the knights really coming through and really making my game overall a much better aspect of my gameplay. I'm not going to lie. It almost feels like it's a, a long time coming for me and my team because we've attended many, many team tournaments over the years, but we've never seen ourselves on a podium finish, and this is our first time we saw ourselves kind of finish well at a team tournament, uh, something that we can kind of take away as like a something we can build on for all future, hopefully do well in any other future events as well. But our main thing was uh, we really appreciate the community as a whole for every time when we come out there as individuals or as a team, everyone is so supportive. They want you to be there. They want to collaborate with you. And I just can't stress that enough that everyone's so supportive in the 40K community. And thank you, Val, for even having us on this show. Um, me and my team are incredibly grateful for you just reaching out to us and just talking to you. And um, thank you so much for everything that you do. And we really hope we can proceed forward with a lot of success. Oh, stay classy, Hamza. Stay classy. And congrats to the team. For the effort up in Sudbury. Before we hit that bump, we're just going to allow Kevin to offer a few parting words. Overall, even with this sportsmanship, yellow card, and so forth, it was a great event, and we definitely had a great time. We had got a lot of great feedback, and all our players and teams are definitely looking forward to coming back next year. Next year, we're looking to grow the event. We're looking to make it a five-man team, so that gives more um pairing options the pairing process lasts longer and it's more complicated and it provides more tactical decisions and we're looking to expand it to a better venue with a um 
a hotel and so forth. So we're looking to expand October 2nd and 3rd last year. I just want to thank uh, Val for running this great podcast and the Falcon and so forth, guys. And if you have any interest, look us up, The Basement Collective on Facebook. We also run as individual major in June everywhere. All right, guys, have a good one. Tournament news. Hi, I'm Chris from Canhammer, and you're listening to 40K Stat Center. What happens when you shove 57 ordinary Australians into a community center in Sydney? If you answer to sweaty pile of curse words and tank tops or a crock and bunyip bingo extravaganza on any other weekend, you'd be right. But this weekend, this weekend was different. This weekend marked the triumph at the mother of all battles, or Moab for short, an ITC almost major in Sydney, Australia, hosted by Legion, an excellent FX TV series, Marvel comic character, and or biblical reference, Moab was the place to be as Australia's finest gathered in their cultural capital, but not their actual one, to play knifey spoony once more. T.O. Chris Materis was happy to explain. Hi there, I'm Chris Mataris, and I was one of the two TOs who helped run the Triumph at Moab event located in Sylvania, New South Wales. The Moab event has been around for a few years now, but this is the first time that Jeremy and I had decided to take it upon ourselves uh, to have a go at running our first ever event. As any first time TOs will tell you, it is slightly intimidating, but we stuck it out and had some amazing feedback from everyone attending, including the Sutherland Gaming Group who are the overall hosts of the Mob Convention weekend, and who went above and beyond to help make it such a great event. The local meta consisted of a lot of new players. We had a total of 58 sign-ups, with 57 showing up on the day. From players attending their first ever ITC event to veteran players who travelled to multiple events all year round. We had a handful of big-name players show up from out of state as well. Matt, the play golf Morisoli, and Adam Camilleri both of which represented Australia at the ETC this year, deciding to fly up from Melbourne to Sydney just to fly back as overall winner and runner-up of the event over. We had a total of six Iron Hand players playing a large variety of lists, including Executioners, Leviathans and Redemptors, but unfortunately they were not strong enough to deal with the large amount of talented veteran players who had attended the event this year. We had a few out there lists, our personal favourite being lists which consisted of 18 Carnifexes, but this was also not limited to an off-meta list run by Michael Duke, which included a Tyranophyte deep striking in a Tyranifex, with four Carnifexes as support which ended up coming third overall. Overall, it was an amazing experience, and Jeremy and I are both looking forward to hopefully running the event again next year with hopefully an even bigger turnout. After the first four rounds of the Mother of All Battles, the event would have three undefeated players. Matt, Plague, Hulk, Morisali, and his old faithful Chaos List would battle it out with Hamish, the Fightin' Amish, listeners, Listers, Ultramarines for first place, while a 3-0-1 Adam, the Dromedary Camillary, would pair down to take on Christopher Wright's Iron Hands. Adam, one half of the dynamic down-under pairings duo, would come out on top in an extremely close matchup, all but guaranteeing at least a second-place finish in the event and going undefeated with a primary army we have not seen much of late. Let's take a quick look at Adam's Death Watch, Blood Angels, and Imperial Fists matchup. So Adam ran a Death Watch battalion with a Watchmaster, a Librarian with Jump Pack, Stormbolter, and Force Stave, in his troop slots, he had 10 intercessors running stalker bolt guns, and he did have a power fist on the sergeant. And then he had three 10-man regular veteran squads 
One of them had three Terminators with Power Maul, Storm Bolter, and then six veterans with Storm Shield, Storm Bolter, as well as the Biker with Teleport Homer. And then he had two squads of ten veterans made up of four Terminators with Power Maul, Storm Bolter, and six veterans with Storm Shields and Storm Bolters. He then had a Blood Angels battalion with a Smash Captain and Mephiston. Along with three units of close combat scouts, one of which had a storm bolter on the sergeant. And then he had an Imperial Fist spearhead detachment uh, with another uh, smash captain. However, I believe this one just had a chainsword instead of a thunder hammer and three thunderfire cannons. All right. I, you know, no Black Templars, so we're improving. Yeah, he has uh, gotten out of that ditch. Um, it's a very interesting list. It has a, a lot of damage potential. Um, the Stogger Bolt guns on the Intercessors, they can do a lot of work. If he's playing against Xenos, he can use them to snipe out characters um, with the stratagem. But otherwise, um, you know, it's a, now that they're AP minus two damage, two shots, uh, even at heavy, they, they do a lot of work. Uh, Death Watch veterans have always been good with Storm Bolters. Um, the triple Thunderfire Cannon as Imperial Fists, I really like that uh, because uh, they ignore cover. Um, so, so you're you're getting a little bit more damage through uh, as Imperial Fists. And that Captain with Jump Pack and Storm Shield, um, he, doesn't sh he doesn't say in the list that he has a Chainsword. I'm just assuming so because Teeth it's free. Terra? Then he can, yeah, take Teeth of Terra and just like wreck a, a squad if he uh, wants to throw him into combat. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty good list. I'm sure Adam has a lot to say about it, and he's a much better player than I would ever be. Well, on that happy note, why don't we uh, hear from Adam? Hello, you saucy boys. This is Adam from Down Under Everything and 40k Australian Everything, and I was lucky enough to go 4-0-1 at Moab this weekend. I was running a primary uh, Imperium, sorry, primary Death Watch Imperium list. And this is my intro to finally, finally, finally get onto Stat Center. So this is my first event in a while uh, back in the, well, back trying to, really trying to crush it, really trying to win and get to the top tables again. I took a 18 month to two year hiatus. I spent 12 months playing Mono Black Templars and then I spent the last kind of uh, nine months to a year streaming every major event I've gone to instead of playing. So this is the first time in a while I'm back in suppose the top table hunt, I guess, the hunt to get to get and crush podiums. So I wanted to do that by taking something pretty safe. And uh, Deathwatch uh, being very safe, very resilient, and uh, also the rest of the list being constructed about not giving up points and being safe and being able to get points, I suppose was my... I suppose what I found was the easiest way to get back into that kind of top table mode that I think I've been out of in the last, couple, last little while. So the whole concept of the list uh, relies on the Thunderfire cans being able to pick up screens and um, letting the Death Watch guys in reserve and the slingshot from the Death Watch unit starts on the board, uh, letting them get in uh, really deep into my opponent's lines and uh, be getting getting very aggressive very quickly. It's going from um, no aggression starting on the table, just the intercessors with the stalker bolters, which I took because I thought I was walking into a meta where there's going to be a lot of other Primaris Marines and those stalker bolters on the with the two plus to poison rounds become absolutely phenomenal at killing other intercessors so that was the concept behind that and um, then i had everything all those smashy characters mephiston smash captains and whatnot hiding behind you know 30 death watch vets with six storm shields each and a bunch of terminators it became a very reliable army um, very good at denying points and getting where i wanted my mvp for the weekend was mephiston he is a 
boss boss of a boy when he gets up and going. If he manages to get both wings and quickening off, uh, he is an absolute blender. And uh, I chose him. Uh, some people have questioned why I chose him over Libby Dread. Um, I didn't expect the heavy mech to be out and about as much as it is now and i really wanted someone that could go into enclosed ruins and pretty much tackle anything that could be hiding in there well uh he can do that um the libby dread can't on top of that the libby dread people like to hide him behind walls and things and what happens then is if somebody's able to deny especially an iron hands player is able to deny with that four plus your wings all of a sudden he's stuck on the other side of a wall and he has a, a fantastic six inch move to get around that wall uh, and do absolutely nothing. Whereas the Mef can, he can walk, he can advance, he can go all sorts of other places. He can get on into all those nooks and crannies. Uh, plus, he is just a baller of a guy. And my last highlight would I, I would say would be my entire game with Chris Wright. Um, we played on the second top table for pretty much playing for second and third place. I think Chris may have gotten first place if he absolutely decimated me and Matt Morisoli didn't do so well. But uh, we had an incredible, incredible game. Chris is one of the best players in Australia, and I'd say he's up there as one of the, the people to watch out for in Australia. If you ever see him playing a game on stream or if you ever want someone to follow who's always at the edge of the meta and he's always cooking, um, you know, he, he really, really takes into account everything. We call him the calculator. I suppose he's probably our version of uh, Brandon Grant. He's, uh, he's all cold and calculated, and he plays perfect 40k um i was very lucky in that matchup i got uh firstly i got hammer and anvil against him and i got a very very dense table which is the uh, the two things i needed to actually make a game of that and then um yeah we just had a fantastic fantastic game i ended up taking it just by three points at the end and i could have easily swung he could have won by three points pretty much at any point in that game um so i just like to highlight how well the TOs did. This was their first time running any event of any size. They didn't cut their teeth running a handful of RTTs before they tried to run a GT or a Major. They went straight from nothing to Major status. Uh, and, you know, they, they put together the player packs themselves. They asked advice from people here, there, and everywhere. And, uh, yeah, they ran, a, a, they ran a great, great event. So thank you very much, Chris. Thank you very much, Jez. You guys did a, a great show. You were always there for TO rulings when I needed you. You were attentive. You were clear. You were concise. Uh, it was very much appreciated, gentlemen. Um, on top of that, thanks Val and Pete for doing a fantastic job. Uh, I love that Stat Center is a thing, and I look forward to listening to it every week. At the top table, Australia's 2018 number one player and the number two player in my heart, Matt Morisali, would take it all, proving that some of the old Chaos builds still have a little bit of juice left in the squeeze, even against the Space Marine meta of today. Let's take a look at what he brought. Val, would you like to read a list? <laughs> thought you'd never ask Val. This oh, guy. This guy. All right. So he's uh, rocking a battalion of uh, Chaos Undivided, uh, led by a demon prince uh, with the uh, with the demon axe and the corn thing. Uh, he's got a herald of Shlanesh. Uh, he's got uh, two units of 19 uh, bloodletters uh, with the icon and instrument. And he's got 20. a unit. Oh, sorry. 20 bloodletters <laughs> uh, and 20 pink horrors. Uh, then we got another battalion uh, with a changecaster and a poxbringer. Uh, this one's got nerglings, a unit of, I'm going to guess, 27 plague bearers and a unit of 20 plague bearers. And then his third detachment is a Thousand Suns battalion. Uh, we got Araman on a disc. We got a demon prince at Zinch. Uh, who was the warlord? And then uh, a demon prince of Zinch with the Dark Matter Crystal. And then in the Chaos slots, we got a... Ooh, Chaos Cultist sighting. We've got um, 10 of those two and two units. And then a unit of Zangors uh, with the Brayhorn. 
and uh, there are probably 19 or maybe even 20 of those. You did it. Hooray. Wasn't that awesome? Yeah. So this is a pretty old school list, especially uh, for Matt. Matt's run this uh, a few times on and off. Um, I really like that he brought it back, even with a Space Marine meta on the horizon. So what, what specifically is saying old school to you? In this list, well, I mean, we have the cultists. We've got a lot more blood blood letters. Is that basically? It's it? the no. It's it's. I'm when I say old school, I kind of mean more from a Matt Moore solely perspective. This ah. is a list that he's run multiple times. Um, slight slight variant, but not overly so. Um, you know, two blood letter bombs and a Zangor bomb on top of the plague bearer screen, and then you know all of your smite spam from the demon princes Ariman, um, the herald of Selenesh, If he really wants to take the um, uh, the Forbidden Gem, if he needs it in some matchups, the Demon Prince of Corn for the Super Axe. Um, it's like it's a stalwart old friend. The the difference between this and say a, uh, like the Jim Vessel style list is that he's relying a little bit less on Plague Bearers and more on just dropping you know bomb after bomb on his in his opponent's face with those blood letters and the Zangors, and uh, hoping to clear up uh, the chaff etc. with them. All right, well, why don't we uh, hear Matt talk about dropping bombs in his opponent's faces? Hey, guys. I went uh, 5-0 at Moab this weekend. He took out first place uh, using a mixed chaos list with some chaos demons and thousand suns. Uh, there's nothing particularly special about the list or the tactics of it when you compare it to the other lists that are now doing quite well uh, in this style with the, the mass bodies, plague bearers, uh, backed up by demon princes uh, and Araman. Uh, the only real variation, I think, is that I run uh, 40 blood letters, and most of these lists only run one unit, and, you know, Jim runs one small unit. Uh, however, I find that having uh, a couple of units with the big 3d6 charge lets you go very deep, uh, and lets you, you know, sort of stagger your drops and have three aggressive drops with the Zangors as well, and just put pressure on for longer. Uh, yeah, in terms of the overall tactics of it, it's very much just take the board and then attempt to smite your opponent out and deny them kill more. Or killing a unit at all when you can. My MVP unit was the three-man Nerdling squad this weekend. Um, I went into it with the goal to prioritise whatever it's pick table to pick the table that had the best bit of terrain in the centre of the board, uh, and then deploy so my Nerdlings and my big Plaguebearer units could get stuck into the centre of the board as quickly as possible, and then pick up recon every turn, uh, as well as having my second Plaguebearer units and some cultists on engineers. Uh, in three of the five games, I got a great middle line of sight looking terrain in the middle of the board that I was able to castle up in. Uh, and then when you're scoring all your progressive points uh, by turn five, uh, it makes it very hard for your opponent to kill up, especially when they're not killing as much uh, or, or any of your army. Uh, sometimes when you get to deny that with things like the, the Warp Surge of the Plague Bearers and the extra minus one to hit, and buffing the Zangors up as well. Uh, that worked yeah, really, really well, and the Nurglings were, were really good for that. Uh, my heart of the event was probably the drinking on Saturday night, but I don't think that's actually what you're asking. Um, I, I had five great games against five great opponents. It's been a long time since I've been able to say that I had five games that were competitive and tactical, while also being quite relaxed and fun. Um, there was a bar at the venue, so I was drinking the whole time, uh, almost to my detriment in, uh, in game three. Uh, but I couldn't pick out one specific opponent or one specific game as being the best. Um, I played Chris Wright, who is arguably the best player in New South Wales, and we had a 
a very good tactical game. And I also played Hamish on the top table, who it was his first time uh, getting to T-Whip. Uh, and I did pull out the win there, and we had a great game as well. But they were all uh, all fantastic games against fantastic opponents. Uh, and I would definitely uh, definitely recommend this event to anyone in the, the New South Wales region of Australia uh, next year. Uh, the only other thing I'll say is, is a, a huge shout-out to the, uh, the TOs, to Chris Maharis and uh, Jeremy Brody. Uh, for background, Chris was actually messaging me with a bunch of questions about running the event uh, after I ran EastCon a couple of months ago. Uh, Chris was sort of hitting me up for some, yeah, some ideas because it was his first time running an event. And at that stage, I wasn't planning on coming, but my uh, ETC teammates, uh, Adam and Lee, were both going up to the event. Uh, and they sort of convinced me to get on it, and I, I booked some last-minute flights and uh, booked an Airbnb and everything, and we headed up. Uh, and it was really, really great to see what a great job the TOs did, given it was their first time, and they were asking me some, some pretty basic questions, like less than a month before the event, the, the quality of what they put on, uh, and the way they conducted themselves was, uh, was pretty amazing. So a, a big, big shout-out to you guys. You did great. Congratulations to Matt and Adam on their performances, and most importantly, thank you, Matt, for getting us your audio in a timely manner this time. You're in the big leagues now, Slugger. Tournament news. Scarry here from Scardcast, and you are listening to Stats Center. From here, we set off to Brandon, Manitoba, home to the largest pile of salt in the northern hemisphere, outside of wherever your average Eldari player is standing. That, of course being the duo behind the Salt Mine podcast. Last weekend, the locals took a break from fighting the DJs from upcountry to put on a 46-person ITC Warhammer tournament. And I just want to underscore here, folks, this is in Brandon, Manitoba, where I'm not sure they have 46 people. No, I, I'm quite sure it's more like 11 people and then 64,000 acres or so of wheat. I'm, 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 you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm fairly certain that the number one tourist attraction in Brandon is a stop sign. Uh, you are correct. There's nothing to correct there. Now, it was here that John, the third strongest man in Letterkenny, Kill Cullen, managed to strong arm, bribe, and otherwise corral, as we said, 46 Canadian planeswalkers into a GT after learning the secret of terrain building from the 40k gods. Like a modern-day Genghis Khan, he, was, he has managed to gather enough of the disparate Canadian steppe tribes to form a 40k team, and is somehow related by blood to at least half of them. The event was won by local terror Brendan Cookie Krusty, running a pure Astra Militarum list, beating Logan Degeneration X and Tonations White Scars in a harrowing matchup. Let's kick it over to some clips. Hello, 40K Stat Center. My name is Brennan Krusty, and I am going to go over my pure Imperial Guard list that I ran at the Middle of Nowhere GT here in Brandon, Manitoba. So my list starts off with uh, three tank commanders, one which has a regular battle can, one which is a relic, an executioner, and then I have Pask in an executioner tank. I then have two primary psychers, an astropath, a tech priest, two company commanders, and then I rock 90 infantry, uh, seven of which which have a grenade launcher, three mortar teams, two basilisks, two wyverns, and I believe that's it. 
Um, the tank formation, I take the tank formation for the relic, obviously, and I take the artillery formation for double firing artillery pieces. And I also brought an assassin through my, uh, for each one of my games. And that is my list in a nutshell. So my strategy for the list itself is very, um, dependent on matchup. But if I'm going against a close combat heavy army, I'm usually using the guardsmen for shields. Uh, I found interesting ways to prevent wraps for the most part when it comes to using my guardsmen. Um, usually putting bases close together, creating a long line where it's hard to get wraps on it, and removing casualties usually helps me. But playing a shooting list, then I usually try to check ranges and stay out of anti-tank range to keep my heavy hitters, which are Lehman Russes, uh, back away. And if I know I can kill something, then I can commit my executioners out there to light it up and destroy. But it's always dependent on the matchup and the terrain, but that's usually the rule of thumb. Especially being Imperial Guard, I usually don't want to get right out in everyone's face. So the all-star for unit for my army um is actually should be plural it's units is my uh company commanders my lehman rust tanks those guys do work in every matchup i have no matter what um they are definitely the backbone of my army and i definitely know to keep them alive hence the reason why i bring a tech priest so in case they take some damage i can get them back up to top bracket or at least a decent bracket but i have to say those are definitely a useful component of my list but a little shout out is the Primaris Psychers and Astropath. Those ones give a little bit of mortal wound goodness that I can take out harder to kill things or just strip some wounds off something that I'm about to hit with um, maybe a tank commander or some guardsman las fire. So they are also just a, a mini all-star on my list. And the last game I played was against White Scars. Fast moving, get across the board, engage your line. And of course we had the uh, spearhead assault, which is like six inches from the table side, nine inches from the center, and it creates an arrow point. Hate that deployment. Sucks for guard because I got so much stuff I need to fill. But um, I was able to get first turn in this game and kill two or three Invictor War suits. It was still a very close game. I only won by, I think, two points. I think we miscalculated the exact result at the end. Not that it's a big deal. Um, but it was a hell of a close game. Uh, we really were just neck and neck. It was, he was always getting kill more. I was always getting hold more. And it basically just came down to the fact that I had a turn where I got kill and hold more to get the win in that one. It was super close, but it was honestly, it was really cool because there are two off meta lists and that were slugging out a top table, which made it really, really enjoyable. Did I tech against Space Marines? I did. That actually was the reason why I brought some Executioners, uh, Basilisks, and um, the Battle Cam Lehman Russes. Because those it's a negative AP that you really need to punch through Marines. And I also find that um, the Executioners are really good Primaris killers. And I actually used to use Pask a lot in an Executioner because he hit on twos, re-rolling ones. He stayed stationary. Uh, even if he moved, you could still do the order reroll ones. And he was a beast. The reason I took him out of the list was because of the Castlin. But now that that's gone and Marines are kind of like the go-to, um, I've added him back in. Of course, the Iron Hands um, will cause issues for my list. But, I mean, at the end of the day, those Iron Hands are, I think, are a little too good for what you get in that book. And they're definitely going to be the boogeyman army at a lot of uh, tournaments. With the next five players in the top ten running Space Marines, and four of them being those ever-lovable, squishy Iron Hands, 
Let's hear from their top placing representative, recent convert from chaos, and a man still looking for his donkey, Ryan Mandrick. Hey everyone, thanks for having me on. My name is Ryan Mandrick. I'm located in Saskatchewan, center of the Canadian Prairies. I'm team captain of the Salt Miners and co-host of The Salt Mine, a podcast about competitive 40k. The list I took to the middle of nowhere GT was an Iron Hands triple executioner featuring three Stormhawk interceptors and three units of scouts, and then the support HQs. So a chapter master, a lieutenant, a jump chaplain, and the Iron Father Fieros. The strategy of this list is to have a very durable firebase with the support HQs and using the Ironstone to keep executioners on a 5-up invuln and then damage reducing and then as well getting your double heal every turn as well as buffing them up with plus to hit if need be or just the BS2 from the Fieros and putting out a large amount of damage. Then using the mobility of the Stormhawk Interceptors to get into enemy lines, shoot at units that are trying to hide, and as well just be a general nuisance because the Stormhawk Interceptors are very good against anything that has fly, getting additional minuses to be hit and making full use of the Iron Hands Doctrines to have self-contained rerolls and uh, mitigation for moving and firing heavy weapons. So it's a combination of a very durable, very powerful firebase and then a bunch of self-sufficient units that can go out to the board and pick things up as I need them to. When looking at what the MVP of this list would be, it's easy to just point at the Repulsors and say... These are the best part of the list, and while Repulsors are the backbone of this build, I wouldn't call them my MVP because they do represent, with all of the character support, almost 13-1400 points of the list. Whereas the Stormhawk Interceptor, whom I feel is the MVP of the list, it only takes up 480 points. These units are able to score recon every game, they're able to screen for characters, they're able to pressure backlines, remove characters, and they also hedge the Eldar Flyer matchup significantly. For anybody who hasn't seen this unit, they get minus two to be hit by units with fly, and they gain a native plus one to hit units with fly, as well as having very good Icarus weapons. In addition to that, all of their weapons are heavy, so they are moving and shooting anything with fly in a two, rerolling ones on their own, and doing significant damage against uh, T6 vehicles, so Eldar vehicles that have fly. Uh, this came into play many times in the tournament and helped me out a lot. As we all know, the Elder Flyer matchup is a very difficult one, especially for uh, mech-heavy lists. Having played Triple Repulsors before, playing them as Iron Hands uh, is extremely powerful. The one weakness of that archetype is its inability to lock in secondaries aside from just killing stuff off the table. It has to move slowly or it doesn't get to shoot twice, and oftentimes moving up the board usually puts you next to ruins and terrain that your opponent can pivot off of and just gut your castle. Having the flyers allows you to play the list in a way that you just would not be able to without them. Over the weekend, my favorite in-game moment would probably be when I took the last two wounds off of a Knight Gallant with a Hunter Slayer missile. The Hunter Slayer missile is a stratagem that you can use once per game per repulsor to shoot a missile at an opposing model that's a vehicle or monster and you hit them on their ballistic skill so using it to finish something off is a bit risky because they're usually having a ballistic skill of five or higher but when it works it works one game i'd like to highlight and go over that really speaks to this list's ability to counter the meta as it is is my game against a nine flyer elder list so the list was a number of hqs on bikes with three crimson hunters three crimson hunter exarchs and three nightwings so basically nine variants of the crimson hunter this is a particularly difficult list to deal with, 
especially against anything with fly because it's so easy for them to get uh, rerolls uh, to wound against it. Now, this list is able to withstand even going second against that as I went second in that matchup. Turn one, losing only a repulsor, and then the damage on the next repulsor was healed, and the counterpunch uh, following that turn was enough to severely cripple the list, removing two flyers and bracketing to the bottom bracket three more. He was able to pick up an additional repulsor the following turn. However, after that, another three flyers bit the dust. Um, at that point, the Elder Flyer list just doesn't have the ability to continue to exchange punches because even if by fluke it does manage to pick up another repulsor, which is extremely unlikely, it still then has to contend with the Stormhawks. And the Stormhawks will be hitting the Flyers on threes, rerolling ones if they're within 12 inches with their assault cannons, and then hitting on twos, rerolling ones with their Icarus weapon so long as they're within 12 inches and they're not being affected by the LA talk bubble. This means that the Stormhawk Interceptors will just grind down whatever Eldar Flyers remain and then continue to pick off characters because, of course, all the best Eldar characters have fly. In our game, it didn't actually have to come to that. My final Repulsor did not die and I was able to continue to deal damage and secure the victory. This was a really significant victory for the list because the damage output and durability of Eldar Flyers and Eldar Flyer builds is legendary. I'd like to give a shout out to John Kilcullen, TO of the Middle of Nowhere GT and co-host of the Salt Mine. As well, I'd like to say thank you to I Want That Stuff out of Brandon for the extremely generous prize support, and to 40 Below Gaming for all the help setting stuff up and providing terrain. As well, to OV of the Rogue Beards for providing no small amount of terrain himself. I would also like to thank all the gentlemen who traveled out to roll some dice with us. There's no way without all the support of the community we could have had such an amazing event. Thanks so much, guys, and thanks everyone for listening. It's always a pleasure to pull Ryan out of his swamp for a comment. He truly is the Shrek of Warhammer 40k. Tournament news. I'm Lawrence Baker. And this is the B-Bone from Tabletop Tactics. You're listening to 40k Stat Center. Did we say once we'd only do four events? <laughs> Suckers. We lied. Except I'm the sucker. Yep. This international edition of our show wouldn't be quite the same without a stealthy, secret Scottish GT. Those crazy kilt-wearing fools trying to get another one past us, but we would not be misled. We know your tricks, and we also know that a Sporn is just a fancy-looking fanny pack. Yes, that's right. Voidhammer 2019 happened over the weekend in Elgin, Scotland, and the only reason anyone knew about it is because Innes Wilson is about as good at keeping secrets as he is at recording his thoughts in a way that makes any sense. 28 players piled into the Seaforth Club in Moray this last Saturday, and most of them had come for some good old-fashioned wargaming. It is probable that several were also there to practice their salsa dancing, as we hear the instructors are absolutely fabulous. The event would end with two undefeated players, as neither Innes the Submariner Wilson's White Scars and Dave, the master of puppets, Marie's house Tyrannus Knights, would bend the knee. Let's take a quick look at their lists. Now, Val, I know you're getting a little tired. It's a little late at night, so how about I take both of these on for you? How well, do you feel? I, well, I feel uh, there's a knight's list. I'll do the knight's list. Are you sure? It's yeah. a complicated knight's list. I can do it. Okay. Well, Dennis Wilson, he brought a White Scars Battalion with a librarian in Phobos armor and a standard librarian with four stave, as well as three units of five intercessors with standard bolt rifles. He then had a second White Scars Battalion. This had the Slaplin, that's a chaplain with a jump pack, 
and a lieutenant with jump pack and power fist, as well as a chainsword, and three squads of scouts and a thunderfire cannon. And he topped it all off with a third battalion detachment, also White Scars. This one had two smash captains a, and a captain on bike, also with Thunder Hammer and Storm Shield. Two units of scouts with combat blades, as well as a squad of five infiltrators. In his elite slot, he had five assault centurions with full-on hurricane bolters and flamers. And he rounded it out with three squads of three eliminators, all uh, rocking those bolt sniper rifles. All right, folks, I'm barely hanging in there. Let's get this puppy to the end of the line. We got Dave Murray's list. It's a super heavy detachment, which apparently gets you 6 CP. As mentioned, this is House Tyrannus. The first knight is a Night Crusader with a heavy stubber, Iron Storm missile pod, thermal cannon, and Avenger Gatling cannon. The second one has the Iron Storm missile pod, thermal cannon, Avenger Gatling cannon. Is there a theme? That's correct. The third one, exactly the same. Then we have a battalion detachment uh, of uh, Adeptus Mechanicus, Forge World Greya, two Tech Priest Engine Seers, and then three units of uh, five, uh, probably six, Rangers, uh, with galvanic rifles and then finally a battalion detachment of blood angels look at that we're gonna hear about these guys uh one with the um uh, smash captain and then a librarian dreadnought with uh, librarian dreadnought stuff and then three units of blood angel scouts um all of them are uh five dudes strong and they're rocking the bolt guns and the sergeant carries that combat knife. Mm. Yes, that librarian dreadnought carrying his librarian dreadnought things. You know, books, I bet, I'd imagine. Perhaps some runes. Yeah, I um, bet he does all those things. Perhaps a wand. How about we uh, get Dave's take on his list and the event as a whole? Probably going to be more cogent. The survivability of the Tyrannus Knights is key. I played really conservatively with my CP to make sure I had enough to keep sending them back up when they died. Uh, I never once command reroll to save. I always kept that for my roll to get back up on a 4+. The list starts with 19 CP, uh, but I start most games with around 14 to 15. By the time I buy my pre-game relics and warlord traits, etc., uh, the rank can come back maybe three or four times, depending on how I roll for those four ups. Uh, the key to the night standing back up is the end of the phase with D3 wounds remaining. Then I just spend one more CP the following turn to act on top profile for the rest of that turn. So he functions normally and shoots. Usually after a couple of turns, the threats that can deal with the knights are dead. It's really hard to kill all three and keep them down. Although it did happen in two of my games this weekend, dealing with the knights gives up eight secondary points for Kingslayer and Titanslayer. But a lot of my opponents really struggled to find the third secondary. Uh, so I didn't actually give up 12 points in any of my games. I scored max secondaries in four out of my five games and 10 points in the fifth game. Mainly because of the damage I put the knights uh, to Butcher's Bill in every game uh, because of how killing the Crusaders are. But I also took Recon in four out of five games because of how survivable the Trinus makes them. Uh, even if they die, I just send them back up and they can score for another turn. The three Crusaders were my MVPs for sure. They've been so much work over the weekend. They have such a high damage output and are really difficult to deal with having the six up final pain and the ability to stand back up. I went undefeated for the first time with a 4-0-1 record. My one draw was against uh, my clubmate, uh, Innes Wilson, who's an ETC player for Team Scotland. Uh, this was a really tough game to play. He's pioneered a list that really plays quite differently to a lot of other melee armies. 
he controls the board really well, that he dictates when the action happens. Uh, thankfully, I was able to make him go first, and with what little screens I had left uh, by turn three, I was able to screen him out to make sure his outflanking Assault Centurions uh, couldn't get into a night that turn. Um, it was a really hard-fought game. He played really conservatively uh, because he knows the power that Knights have. Ennis and I play all the time in practice games. He usually takes the win. So it was really nice to get a draw the first time I play him at a tournament. Uh, the game could have gone either way uh, right to the end, and we ended in a 28-28 draw. I also played the new Iron Hands twice, which is not an easy game for me. Uh, round one against six Dreadnoughts, all armed with twin last cannons and missile launchers. All characters, so I can't shoot them. Not a great game for me, but um, I focused on the mission, walked away with a 30-21 win. Then round five, played another clubmate, Chris Irvin, with the worst possible list for me to deal with. Iron Hands again, three Repulsor Executioners, all the buffing characters, all the great new stuff everyone's taken. Um, this one not pulled battle from the beginning. Uh, going second again, losing a night a turn all game long. Chris punished me on the board. By the end of turn six, I had one scout, one engine seer, and ten rangers left. I made a game winning decision in turn four. Uh, just before I lost my knighthood, died and uh, stood back up the previous turn. I moved him in position to take out the Thunderfire Cannon, then realised that, uh, so then I ran right at his castle, uh, making sure he had to deal with me um, before he moved out to deal with the rest of my army. Uh, this also got me my last recon point, which was huge in the end. Um, I'd also killed his engineers early, uh, limiting, limiting to one point on engineers. Uh, I won the game 23-22, uh, which means it wouldn't have been the case if I made that play. Um, so anyone that's played this list knows what I mean. It's crazy good. The TO, Andrew Mulholland, did a great job with this event. Uh, it was great from start to finish. This was the first 40k event he's run, I think. Um, but he's already got two dates uh, for next year. I'd really encourage anyone that's um, in Scotland to uh, get on with these events. Uh, the train was great. Tables were great. Price support was fantastic. A really great weekend. And now let's cut to event winner, Ennis Wilson. I just hate saying that. Hi everybody, Ennis Wilson here, recording after a disconcertingly good finish at the Voidhammer GT in Elgin. I was playing my White Scars list, very similar to what I was taking at the LGT. Uh, I decided to stick with White Scars after the, quite frankly, incredible performance I had at the Lonely Grand Tournament. Uh, managed to go 5-0 there. Um, wasn't able to repeat the performance this weekend, managed to go 4 wins in a draw. But the army played really well, it played really well to my playstyle. Um, and it's just more interesting than playing something like Iron Hands. And Raven Guard didn't have anything specific that appealed to me and that was better than what I thought I could get from White Scars. So I decided to stick it out, go with White Scars for the foreseeable future. And I'm really happy I did because it paid off. Master Snares is just that good. It's worth giving up pretty much everything else for. As far as there being anything special to my approach to the list, uh, I don't really think there is. I know not a lot of people are going triple battalion style builds, especially for white scars, uh, or really for anything. So I like having access to the CP, which is definitely something that not everybody's doing, but I feel like it gives me a lot of options and a lot of ability to play basically any game I get put across from. Uh, and I think I spent all 18 CP in all five of my games, possibly barring one or two, just because Space Marines have such poor regen mechanics, that taking a build that maximizes the use of your troops through things like the White Scars bonus with the plus one damage, making every single squad an actual credible threat in combat. Um, I was really happy with how it played. My MVP unit for the weekend was the Warlord Smash Captain. Uh, no surprises there, he gets about 14 CP per game, 
uh, whether it's charging on three dice or double fighting four or five times an extra relic an extra warlord trait he just gets every resource he can possibly be given and then does amazing work with them in my game against Dave Langlands, he killed single-handedly 1,100 points of custard bikes. Against uh, Gavin Heritage, he killed some some aggressors, I think. It wasn't a great game for him. Um, but on the whole, he just, even if he never does anything in the game, he provides such a board presence and such a credible threat to your opponents that they have to deal with him. And I really enjoyed having access to such an incredible way to control the flow of the game. The highlight of the event for me was definitely my fourth game against Dave Murray, uh, who, which was actually a draw. Uh, he's one of my teammates, and I've been, I suppose, developing him for the last year or so, uh, which is really unfair of me to say. He's been getting steadily better uh, with a lot of practice with me and the rest of the guys in, at the Dundee War Games Club, as well as practicing with the other Scottish guys, traveling down to English events. Uh, so it was great to finally get a chance to play him at a tournament and... I mean, he really made me work for it. It was really close to a loss for me. Um, he played it incredibly well, managed to screen out my my Assault Centurions incredibly well, made sure I never got to use them properly, uh, denied me an entire four secondaries on Kingslayer on a knight, which is hard to do against a combat army, and just played it really, really well. Uh, so mad props to him and well done to him for coming second. I'd just like to highlight as well that uh, I actually wasn't playing on table one in the last game. That honour went to Chris Irvine and Dave Murray who were the one and two players going into the last round. Uh, Dave had drawn, drawn me the previous round and had one point higher on victory points, and Chris was 4-0 at that point. Uh, so in order to win the event, I actually needed Dave to win his last game, but not by as much as I won my last game. Um, I was super proud of both of them for coming out and doing that well to be playing on table one at, in the last round, but I'm much happier that Dave managed to pull it out for me, but not pull it out big enough that he jumped me in the standings, or that I jumped him in the standings, um, which was just great. It was an incredibly well-run event, great fun, and I'll definitely be trying to go back next year, hopefully for a repeat performance. Uh, thanks, everybody, and have a great one. Thank you, sweet Jeebus Ennis, for closing this out with your energy, because I am out of batteries. Falcon, um, as, as mentioned fantastic art of war episode and it's talking about a very similar if not identical list design to that so if you want more of those details check out art of war we're plugging them like crazy they had a great week um yeah like what can i say that hasn't already been said by more eloquent people falcon do you have anything you want to round the show out with bye-bye this has been 40k stat center a presentation of the Frontline Gaming Podcast Network. Like what we do? Subscribe to and rate us on YouTube and wherever podcasts can be found. Join the conversation. Follow 40K Stats Center on Facebook. You can also support the show directly by joining the Chapter Tactics Patreon and competitive 40K in general via the ITC Patreon or by grabbing a subscription to BCP. BCP.